Well, let's, let us pray before we begin this. So, Father, I thank you uh, for your word, and I pray that I do a, uh, a reasonable job of presenting it today. Let's give you thanks and praise then uh, for all that you are, all that you do for us. Thank you. And we lift this time up to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of my absolute favorite Bible stories is from 1 Kings chapter 18. And if you didn't know right off the top of your head what that is, it's the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Now, I need to clarify something at this point. Many of you probably say Baal. However, I was corrected. Actually, it was, a whole, it was in a whole group of people. Um, we were at a regional conference, and Rich Nathan was the speaker at this point. And um, Rich is actually Jewish by heritage. And so he was uh, explaining that the proper pronunciation for this was is Baal. He said, not like all of you... Um, people who say Baal. <laughs> so anyway, you can continue to say it how you want, but I'm trying to be uh, all at least honoring of Rich. So if you're not familiar at all with the story, let me just kind of paraphrase it for you. So um, King Ahab and Elijah, the prophet of God, are sort of um, at each other's throats at this point, so to speak. Um, King Ahab has made uh, Eli Elijah sort of public enemy number one in Israel. And he's mounted this massive search and destroy mission for him, looking in all these other countries, just trying to figure out where he is. Um, and part of the reason for that is because Ahab believes that Elijah is at the root cause of all the problems that Israel is facing that he, of course, as king, is trying to deal with. Um, and so he sort of reasoned that if he could control the prophet, probably read, kill the prophet, then he could somehow find a way to overturn the disaster that was going on in Israel. And as if you know the story, you know there was a drought. They were in the midst of a drought in all of this. The real reason for all of this going on, of course, was the fact that Ahab and much of Israel had shifted away from the one true God and were now worshiping other gods. Uh, and Baal was one of those other gods. So as the story goes on, um, Ahab and Elijah finally come together and meet. Okay? And at this meeting, Elijah makes this really unusual request. Uh, and I'll read that this is straight from the, the text. It says, gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So he's asking Ahab to bring everybody, the entire nation of Israel, as well as all these prophets to Mount Carmel. And so when all of Israel is gathered there, uh, <coughs> Elijah issues this challenge to them. And what he says more or less is, it's time to fish or cut bait, guys. Um, you're either, either you follow the Lord your God or you follow Baal, but you need to get off the fence. 
because they were kind of having, you know, a leg in each camp sort of thing. And so sort of to emphasize this whole thing, he proposes this challenge. He says, find two bulls and give one to me and we'll give one to the, the 450 prophets and we're each going to sacrifice them. We'll cut them up, we'll put them on an altar with wood and then you're going to call on your gods to bring fire down from the heavens to burn the sacrifice and I will call on my God to do that and we'll see who wins. So that was the, that was the challenge and, and being the, the nice guy that he is, Elijah even lets the other prophets go first. Um, kind of got going here and uh-oh, I think we need some more batteries. There we go. So this is a picture of the prophets of Baal kind of trying to <coughs> get, you know, their, their gods to, to send down fire from heaven and to burn up this, um, this sacrifice. Well, you know, they're, they're going at this pretty good for several hours. And um, Elijah starts to taunt them which is kind of funny. He says to them things like, so maybe, maybe your God is on a trip. Maybe he's on a journey. He actually even says, maybe he had to leave to go relieve himself. That's in scripture. He had to take a potty break, so he's just not here, you know. So, so anyway, the prophets now start to go at this even harder uh, and they start cutting themselves which was part of their ritual I guess so you know now they're yelling and there's blood everywhere I guess supposedly and this goes on until midday and nothing happens so now it's finally Elijah's turn so there had been an altar on Mount Carmel to the Lord and so he rebuilds this altar uses 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes of Israel he gets some wood, he cuts the bull up into these, you know, five pieces. Oh, thank you. Um, and then he does something really bizarre. He tells, well, he digs a trench around the whole altar, right? And so he tells the people, I want you to go and get four really good-sized jars of water. And I want you to pour the water over all of this. And so they do that, and he says, now go fill them up, and let's do that again. So, and then he says, well, how about a third time? So three times, these four enormous jars of water are poured. So just soaking, you know, the offering, the wood, there's now water in this trench that surrounds the whole thing. So once that's all finished, he prays this prayer. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day, that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And at that point, and this is a, a Jewish word of unknown origin, kablooey. 
this fire comes down out of, out of heaven and falls onto this sacrifice. And not only does it burn up the bull, it burns up the wood, it evaporates all the water. That's an actual photograph of uh, <laughs> when that happened. So at that point, then, Elijah orders that all of these 450 prophets be executed. And so he kills all 450 of the prophets of Baal. In verse 46, it says, somewhat obviously after all that, that the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. Yeah, I would sort of think, after all this has gone on, that's probably true. But in my opinion, here's where the story gets really weird, as if that wasn't odd enough, right? So if you didn't know, Ahab is married to the infamous Jezebel, okay? And Jezebel is not so happy that her prophets have now all been slaughtered. And so she threatens to, to kill Elijah, and the weird part to me is that he's afraid of her. So afraid of her that he runs away and then asks God to kill him. Now, after everything that had just taken place, while knowing that God's hand is upon him, he starts doubting God's ability to somehow save him from this whack job of a queen. <laughs> so, how does that happen? And yet, the same thing happens to us all the time. Do you have times even now, when you look at your heart and you wonder how you could possibly have been born again. Moments in which you care more about what's coming on TV that night than you do about spreading the gospel in the world. Moments when God feels distant, almost like a stranger. Moments when your emotions for him are lukewarm, if not, if not downright cold. Times when you don't jump out of bed hungry for his word and your mind wanders all over the place when you pray. Or you fall to the same old temptation again for the 1,000th time. Or maybe you have moments when you doubt God's goodness. Maybe you even doubt his existence. Now this may not be how you feel all of the time, or even most of the time. But it is how you feel some of the time. And, and I will certainly admit, I, I have times like that. And so in those moments, you might even begin to doubt your own salvation. I mean, after all, 
How could you be saved and still feel like this? What do you do in that moment? Hang on a second. Were you guys going to bring that back to me at some point? or? <laughs> huh? I don't think so. Well, could you uh, flip it forward for me? All right, one more. Um, so the answer to what you do in this moment, like I said, is pretty simple. You keep believing in the gospel. No matter how you may feel at any given moment, how encouraged or how discouraged that you feel about your spiritual progress, how hot or cold your love for Jesus may be in that moment, what you should be doing is always the same. Resting in the gospel. Resting in Jesus' finished work. That's all you can do. It's all you need to do. And it's all God's commanded you to do. On your very best days, you must rest all your hopes on God's grace. And on your worst days... His finished work should be your refuge. So regardless, your posture should always be one of dependence on his finished work and hope in his indwelling spirit. See, a medical diagnosis can tell you what's wrong, but a prescription tells you what to do about it. And so... God's prescription for every diagnosed spiritual malady is the same. It's faith in the gospel. Faith in the gospel imputes righteousness for the believer and, reach and releases spiritual life in the soul. The law may diagnose our problem, but faith in the gospel is what provides the solution. Now, the Bible time and time again reminds us that nobody is immune from doubt or spiritual apathy or severe temptation. We obviously just talked about Elijah. There were others. After speaking with God face to face, Moses lost his temper and, and blasphemed God publicly. After Establishing the greatest kingdom that Israel had ever seen and being known as a man after God's own heart, David committed adultery and then compounded the whole thing with murder. After preaching a sermon in which 3,000 people were saved, 3,000 people in one sermon, Peter fell back into hypocrisy and cowardice. And you have to kind of wonder, does maybe God allows us to struggle that way so that our faith will remain in his grace and not in our own righteousness? And so in that light, maybe it was helpful if you see your ongoing struggle with sin as God's invitation to rest humbly in the gospel 
and to declare again that Christ's cross is your only hope. And so in a moment of weakness and in a moment of doubt, really believe in the gospel. Renew that posture of submission toward Jesus and rest in the news of his finished work. As Martin Luther said, to progress is always to begin again. I'm not saying that you should think of yourself as getting resaved every other moment or that there is no way to be sure that you're saved yesterday or the day before. I'm simply saying that whenever you doubt your standing with God, the solution is always the same. Trust in the finished work of Jesus. Now, what about those times when you don't feel saved? You know, perhaps sometimes you don't, you just, you don't feel saved or maybe you just don't feel that close to God. What should you do then? Well, I think the first thing that we need to do is to acknowledge that feelings are very fickle and dangerously misleading and that scripture never points us to our feelings for assurance. Our assurance ought to be based on the fact of Christ's finished work. Our feelings of assurance will come from maintaining faith in that finished work. <coughs> in other words, feelings come from assurance, not assurance from feelings. There's a little word picture that may be helpful with this. <coughs> so if you were to imagine you know, a very narrow wall around a city. And there's three men walking in a row as they're, as they're walking this wall. And because this wall is so narrow, they've got to really pay very close attention to where they're putting their feet. And, and what the guy in front of them is doing. And so you have lined up you have fact, <laughs> you have fact, faith, and feeling. One, two, three. And so as long as feelings' eyes are on faith and faith's eyes are on fact, everything works out fine. But the moment that faith takes its eyes off of fact and turns around to look at feelings, both faith and feeling will fall off the wall. And so our feelings can very quickly deceive us, which is a weakness that our enemy loves to exploit. He loves to approach us in the midst of a temptation or maybe a time of spiritual defeat or some depression that you're having and tell us, you know, if you really belong to Jesus, you wouldn't feel that way. He tries to use our feelings to get us to doubt our faith. Feelings, however, are the fruit of faith. They should never 
be the source. And so a good, a good approach to this whole concept of feeling should be that you don't feel your way into your beliefs, but you believe your way into your feelings. You don't feel your way into your beliefs, you believe your way into your feelings. <clears throat> John Bunyan, who was the author of Pilgrim's Progress, described how assurance came to him only as he beheld the fact of Christ seated beside the Father, signifying that the work of Bunyan's salvation was completed. Now prior to this, interestingly enough, he said that his assurance of his salvation would go in and out continually as many as 20 times a day. One moment, sure he was saved. Next moment, wondering if he'd felt sorry enough for his sin or he had a robust enough faith to really be born again. But one day, he wrote this. <clears throat> As I was passing through a field, suddenly I thought of a sentence from the scripture, and that sentence was, your righteousness is in heaven. And with the eyes of faith, I saw Christ sitting at God's right hand, and suddenly I realized, there is my righteousness. And where, wherever I was, or whatever I was doing, God could never say to me, your righteousness is insufficient, for it was always before him. I saw that my good frame of heart could not make my righteousness better, <coughs> nor a bad frame make my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And now did my chains fall off indeed. I was loosed from my afflictions and my irons. My doubts fled away. Now I also went home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. Because Jesus' position before the Father is secure, our position before the Father is secure as well. Resting in that fact produces feelings of assurance. And that assurance is not found by remembering a prayer that you prayed at some point in your life, but by continuing that whole posture of repentance and faith that you began that began at your conversion. Jesus said that those who repent and believe will be saved. Repentance and faith are postures you begin in a moment, but maintain for a lifetime. <coughs> Christ finished the work of salvation, of your salvation, 2,000 years ago. Rest in the fact of his finished work, and your feelings of assurance will grow as a result. When you feel like your heart is so bad that you could not possibly be born again, rejoice in the fact that you have been crucified in Christ and he has put your sin away forever. 
when you fear that you will be the one to whom Christ says, depart from me, I never knew you. Rest in his promise to receive all who hope in his finished work. Charles Spurgeon was reflecting on uh, those whom Christ turns away in that verse from Matthew. And he said something to the effect of this. Never knew me, Lord? How could you say that? When I had no hope of salvation, I rested all my hope on you. When I despaired in my struggle against sin, I looked to you for strength. Jesus could never say to me, I never knew you. None who lean the weight of their soul on the truth of the testimony God gave about Jesus as their hope of salvation will ever hear the words, depart from me, I never knew you. To rest in Christ's finished work, you see, is to be known by Jesus. Knowing that you know that you know Jesus and that Jesus knows you will lead you to more peace and joy than you ever dreamed possible. It truly is a foretaste of heaven. When you know for certain that heaven is your inheritance, you'll be moved to radical sacrifice and audacious risk for the kingdom of God. You can give up all you have because you know in him that you have all you need. When the storms of doubt swell up around you, keep your eyes on him and his finished work. He is the rock that holds you above even the waves of your own doubt. There is one who remains faithful even when we doubt. One who is a firm foundation when our steps falter. One who holds on even when we let go. Keep your eyes on him. He is faithful. And it was he who said, it is finished. Amen.